Secrets, uh, so I guess it was back in 2006 and 2007 when we built this building that we're in right now. And if you were here before that, you might remember we were next door in uh, the little sanctuary. And we had five services over there, kind of packed out. And uh, so we, we decided we were going to build. And so it involved this process at first of getting an architect and, and designing the place. And that took a while. And then there was buying uh, property, adjacent property that we needed. And that took a while. And then uh, finally we got started on the project. And that was very exciting. And, and uh, we, uh, we ended up using team construction. They were our uh, general contractor. And uh, kind of the guy, I don't know if he was the, if he was the foreman or the project manager or what he was, Mike would know, but, but Rod Lee, uh, who many of you know, uh, he and his wife are members of our church now. They weren't at the time. They were going to a wonderful church in Vancouver, but have since uh, uh, come here and become part of our church family. But Rod was basically overseeing the project, and so Rod would be here every day, and, and uh, all the trades guys would come here, the, the cement guys and the um, guys who put in the masonry and the electricians and plumbers and all that kind of stuff. And hundreds of guys would come through through the project, and Rod was a guy who was kind of in charge of everyone. And if you remember back then, um, it was uh, during the um, recession, and you would hear these stories about building projects where people would go in and steal all the uh, metal or steal, right? They'd strip the copper out of the place. And so I would always hear these reports on the news and be really nervous. And I would tell Rod, you know, I, you think it's going to be okay? And, oh, yeah, it's going to be fine, you know. And, and then maybe, you know, a couple weeks later, we'd have, like, just tons of materials in here. And I would tell Rod, do you think it's going to be okay? Because we couldn't lock up the building. And Rod would be, oh, yeah, yeah, it's going to be fine. And so this goes on for a while, and there's a point in which we just have a lot of materials and stuff in here. And this is a, so this is a picture of, you can see it, it's actually the, the, the cry room upstairs, but this is before it was finished, and it was kind of building central for a while. And I would, I would uh, go home at night, and a lot of times I'd be the last one out of here, and when I'd go home at night, Rod would still be here, like just, you know, working around and doing stuff. And then I would get here in the morning early, and Rod would already be here, you know, working around and I'd be like, Rod, is anything missing? You think anyone stole anything? He's like, yeah, don't worry about it. It's all fine. And uh, this went on for, for weeks. And finally, one day I thought, you know, what time does Rod come in anyways? He's, I like, I, so I started just experimenting. You know, I, I come in at 5.30 and he'd be, he'd already be here. And so one day I went up in, the, in this room and you can't see it, but like on this side is a closet. And I went in there because I was getting suspicious. There was a microwave in there. There's a coffee maker in there. Um, I went in the closet and there was a cot. And as it turns out, Rod was sleeping in here at night just to watch the building, to make sure that everything was okay. And uh, I'm, sure he was, uh, I'm sure he was armed and loaded. Um, but he was making sure that nobody took anything. And here's the reason I, it was so um, impressive to me because Rod was the top dog. You know, he was the, he was the guy in charge. Uh, when, when you're in charge of a large project like that, usually you get someone else to do that kind of work for you. But here's Rod. He doesn't, he doesn't tell anyone what he's doing. He just very quietly, um, very humbly serves the church and serves uh, the people working on the project by being here at night, by sleeping on a cot in the building. And it made me think this week about uh, where we are in the book of Philippians because we're talking about humility. We're talking about uh, putting other people first, looking out for the needs of others. And uh, we've been going through this section in um, Philippians chapter 2, talking about Jesus' humble choices. In Philippians 2, 6 through 8, I just kind of want to remind you about uh, 
where we are, how we got here. It talks about Jesus and it said, Jesus who, though he was in the form of, of God, and we talked about that last week, the essence, uh, the deity of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And he humbled himself. And if you read the text, you can just kind of see, it's like you're on a staircase and you're just stepping down and down and down. And Jesus is making these humble choices and being found in the human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into the text. Father, I want to thank you for... um, for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, just worship you, think about you, hear your word. And, and I would just pray right now that your uh, spirit would uh, open the eyes of our heart to, to teach us about you, uh, to show us uh, the splendor and the glory and the majesty of your son. And I, I, I pray that uh, to a greater degree than we have experienced in the past, we will we will learn something about your amazing, marvelous son. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said. So a couple things here, we, uh, just by way of review that we talked about last week. Jesus took these, these steps uh, to humble himself, uh, to lower himself, if you will, down the staircase of imagine in heaven, and he's stepping down to earth. Uh, he had this humble attitude that we talked about last week. Um, this attitude in which he really focused on others and thought about others. And, and that's different because typically in our world, we view authority and power in a particular way. We often think of, and we think of it this way, the more authority I have and the more power I have, the more people are under me, right? The more people serve me and the fewer people who are above me. And for many of us, the goal in life is to become uh, powerfully independent. And in ways, that's what many of us want. We don't want anyone telling us what to do, and we want to be able to tell a lot of people what to do. And this is the way that it works in the world. But here's Jesus, who is, who is God, who has all the rights of God, the, the, the power of God, the prerogatives of God, the privilege of God. And he takes all of that, and he, he, he turns it upside down, and he humbles himself has compassion for us, puts our need first, um, thinks about us more than he thinks about himself. He has this humble attitude. So we picture this kind of stepping down from heaven and it begins with an attitude that's humble. And then it says that he took a humble position. He emptied himself by taking the form uh, of a servant. Even though he was our creator, he came to serve us. He came to be our servant. He, He put our interests first. He had every right to demand that we look at his interests. He had every right to demand that that we focus on him. But instead, he sought us. He cared for us. He carried our burdens. He he washed feet, as we talked about last week. He, He healed and he fed. And the third thing that we notice is this, that he lived in a humble body, born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And this for him was a humbling. It was a humiliating thing, a step down, as we talked about last week, um, from existing in the essence and the glory of God to living in a body like ours, to know um, hunger and exhaustion and, and pain. You know, I wonder, like, did Jesus ever get a cold? Um, did he have, like, allergies? I would imagine he was probably allergic to cats because he was holy God. But I just, you know, I was thinking, like, I wonder, and, and I, he, he probably did get 
a cold, but it's, it's humbling to live in a body like ours, isn't it? And the older I get, and I woke up this morning with like the plague 2.0, I don't know what it is, I'm so sick, and, and it's just humbling, it, you know what I mean, when you wake up in the morning and you don't feel good, and the spirit wants to go, the spirit wants to soar, and the body's like, yeah, no, uh-uh, I just want to stay in bed, or I'm going to just sit on a chair, you know, while I preach, and this is, this is what it's like for many of us, we, we experience that, and yet Jesus, here's Jesus, who's God in the flesh, and he's living in this body that has these, these limitations, it was humbling for him, and then there's this, as we talked about last week, his humble death being humbled by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And, and crucifixion, the, the shame, the humiliation of all the ways that he could have died, choosing to die on a cross, choosing to undergo that humiliation, uh, to be mocked, uh, to be put on, on trial falsely, to be struck by the fists of, of people that he, he came to die for to be nailed, to be stripped down of his clothes and nailed to that cross. The, the, this shame, this scandal, if you will, that, that eternal God lowered himself all the way to the grave. He humbled himself, we said last week. No one humbled him. No one, no one took his life from him. He humbled himself. Herod didn't humble him. Pilate didn't humble him. Judas didn't humble him. The high priest didn't humble him. Jesus humbled himself. He had this eternal resolve, this, an, this ambition. And I don't know what it is that gets you up in the morning, that gets you fired up when you wake up and you're like, today I have some ambition. Jesus woke up each day with this ambition to serve. His ambition actually was to go down, 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 if you will, down the staircase and, and into this place of, of humiliation, of being humbled. That was his ambition. And for so many of us, our ambition is the exact opposite. We want to go up, up, up in terms of, you know, uh, pride and, and, and what people see and what they think of us. But Jesus has this ambition to go down, all the way down to the grave. But of course, you and I know that that wasn't the end of the story, not by a long shot. Because in Philippians, Paul talks then about what we might call this ultimate ascent, that after going all the way down to the grave, after being uh, put in a tomb and having that tomb sealed, we're told that he rose from the dead. In verse 9, here's how Paul puts it, therefore God has highly exalted Jesus and God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And so Paul talks about Jesus being highly exalted. That's just one word in the Greek. It's a word that's found nowhere else in the New Testament, not used to describe anyone else, just here talking about Jesus. Uh, Hooper, upso is the word there, and it means to elevate up. Uh, some commentators say it just means to be super exalted, which I like. Um, you won't find that in your Bible, but that Jesus was super exalted and, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. He received, received the highest exaltation, but here's the important point. It all started with him letting go, with him letting go of his rights, with him letting go of his prerogatives, moving down, moving down from heaven, uh, moving down from, from glory, uh, living in the body of a human, being a, a servant of other people, um, dying, uh, being laid in a tomb. But then comes this reversal, if you will. If you will. And the, the reversal has many aspects to it, but in your notes I want to notice five things um, that were a reversal, if you will. And the first is uh, his resurrection, 
So when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus being arrested, being nailed to a cross, uh, suffering, bleeding, dying, being placed in a tomb, and that tomb is sealed. And when the disciples walk away, they think he is dead, and they expect him to stay dead. They don't think that he's going to raise from the dead, because that's just not what happens. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us this, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scriptures. That is, it had always been told that this is what was going to happen. And that he was buried. And, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So he rose from the dead. And he, and he stepped out of the tomb. I just, again, I, I try to imagine. We, we talk about this. Uh, you know, talking about Jesus rising. Like there's, there's three days. And he's in the tomb. And he's not breathing. And everyone thinks it's game over. And then all of a sudden, he starts breathing again. You know? and, and, he, and he kind of sits up. And he takes off the grave clothes and, you know, being God and very, you know, neat, he kind of folds them all up and puts them down and he says, now I'm going to go out and, 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 and conquer the world and the stone gets moved away and there's nobody there. Nobody's waiting for him. Nobody thinks that he's going to raise from the dead. And he walks out of the tomb and for 40 days he appears to many people and, and he goes from someone who appeared to be powerless to stop his crucifixion. Remember, people were calling out to him like, hey, if you're the son of God, get off the cross. And he appears to be powerless. And yet now we see him as someone who, who conquers death and conquers sin. Right now, let me just say that again and think about this. Think about the ramifications for you. He conquered death and he conquered sin. What does that mean for you? And what scripture says is it means everything for you. Because the power that, that raised Jesus from the dead is able to give life, he says, to your mortal body. And Jesus is able to forgive your sin by faith. And this is huge. I, I say this because uh, even last night, <laughs> I'm kind of preaching through this part of the passage and I admit, you know, I'm a little prone to getting excited and I'm, I'm up for getting excited and people are like listening and I just wanted to be like, dude, does this make sense to you? Does this get you excited to think that Jesus Christ rose from the dead? And so, Thank you, yes, all right. Yeah. Uh, and then came his ascension. So here's an interesting thing. Nobody expects him to raise from the dead, but then this is even also very interesting. After 40 days of hanging out with his disciples, it says that he led them out as far as Bethany, and, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them, and, and they don't know what's coming, and while he blessed them, he parted from them, and he was carried into heaven, so he you know, kind of blesses them, and then he begins to rise off the ground. He's like levitating, and he's moving up and up, and I always pictured this scene. I imagine like when I was a kid, did you ever let a helium balloon go up in the air and you just kind of watch and watch and watch and see how long you could keep, you know, an eye on it? And for me, it's like 25 feet now. But, you know, I mean, you kind of watch it go up. And I just picture all the disciples are there and Jesus is going up and up and they're just pretty soon they're all standing there and people are walk, walking by and everyone's just staring in the air. And it says that uh, while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. And they said, men of God. Galilee. Why stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was, who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go. So, so get out there. So start living for him. And then once he gets to heaven, there's another kind of ascension up, if you will. There's what we might call his, his coronation. 
In 1 Peter 3.22, it talks about Jesus who's gone into heaven. And so he's ascended, and, and then he was in heaven, and he's at the right hand. He takes the, a, a seat on the throne uh, by God with angels and authorities and powers, having been subjected to him. And so he, he enters heaven, and I don't know um, what, it's, what it was like. I don't know if he goes through a gate. Yeah, I, I don't know if he walks down a golden street, if there was a parade where there are a lot of high fives. He, he's been gone roughly 33 years. He's been down here. They've been watching him, but the, 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 the king of glory has been away, and they've been watching him. It says uh, in Scripture that angels would peer down and wonder at the things that Jesus did. They just couldn't hardly believe that he would come down here and live in a body like ours and be a humble servant and die for our sin. It's an amazing thing. And he comes into heaven. I don't know if there was a parade or a party or what there was, but he has this coronation, and, and then he's not done. He's, he's still going up even more. Uh, scripture talks about his intercession, in Romans 8, 34, it says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was the one who raised, uh, who is at the right hand of God, and, and who is indeed is, is interceding for us. So he's kind of following us up, back up, if you will. Um, he died, and then he was raised, and then he's at the right hand of God, and now he's interceding for us. So uh, before Jesus' earthly ministry, um, the Jews would have a high priest. And this high priest would be uh, chosen from among them, and uh, the high priest's job was to kind of stand between God and, and the people. And he would represent God to the people and the people to God. And he would make sacrifice for the sins of people and he would speak the words of God to the people and kind of be this intermediary, except that he was just merely a man. He was a sinner. He was imperfect. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and he takes the role of our perfect high priest once and for all. He is our, our mediator he represents God to us as God, but he also represents us to God because he knows what it's like to be us and to be human and, and to live on this, you know, dirt ball. He knows what this is like. And I don't know if you've ever felt, you know, like, I don't know if God really understands me. And here's the best part. God understands you better than you understand you. Because Jesus has, has walked among us and he has experienced everything that you will ever experience, but even more than you will ever experience. And so he is our intercessor. Uh, but then he ascends even, even more than that. Just mention one more thing. Paul says he is given the name above every name that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now Jesus has a lot of names in Scripture. Emmanuel, which we'll, we'll talk a lot about in the weeks to come. Uh, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, Ancient of Days, uh, the Door, the Chief Shepherd, the Good Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, lots of shepherds there, uh, the Word, the Light, the Lamb, the Bread of Life, the Rock, the Bridegroom, uh, the Alpha and Omega. But here he says that he is given the name above every other name. What is that name that is above every other name? Well, he tells us it's Jesus Christ is Lord. He's Lord. Now, commentators tell us that what's going on here is that in the, in the Old Testament, um, God had this personal uh, covenant name with Israel. Uh, you've probably heard the, the name before. Yahweh was, was his name. And the, the Jews revered his name so much that the, when they would be reading scripture and they would get to the name of God, they would get to Yahweh, they wouldn't say that name out loud because they revered it so much. They would substitute it with the word Lord. Um, and so what's happening here is 
Basically, Paul is saying that, that Jesus is God, that he is Lord. It's this covenant name. It's that he is Yahweh, that he is I am. In fact, Jesus said earlier that he is, he is the great I am. And Paul's point is that Jesus is God, God of both Testaments. Some people think there's like the grumpy old God of the Old Testament and then like the happy Jesus of the New Testament. In fact, he says there's just one God. And his name is Jesus, and he is Lord of all. Now, these five things that we've mentioned, and there's more uh, that Jesus received as he ascended, but these five things already happened to Jesus. And what Paul wants to point out to us in the text today is that there's more to come. There's still more glory. There's still more ascension for Jesus. There is a glorious future beyond even what we know at this point. Jesus' upward exaltation isn't done yet. So we pick it up in verses 10 and 11. And here's what he says. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what's interesting is God spoke these words through uh, the prophet Isaiah some 700 years earlier when he said in Isaiah 45, by myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Sound familiar? And every tongue shall swear allegiance. And I mention that because I, I just love the fact that God is so patient. He, he utters those words. He says every knee is going to bow and, and every tongue is going to confess. But I'm going to give you some time. I'm going to give humanity some time to, to, to get this worked out. And so 700 years later, Jesus comes on the, on the scene. 700 years of the patience of God. And Jesus comes down here, and he's God in the flesh, and he lives among us, and he, he shows us what God is like. He goes to the cross. He dies for us. Right? Paul talks about this idea that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Another 2,000 years later, and here we sit being reminded of the patience of God. But he says this, that every knee shall bow. He's, he's referring to every rational created being in the universe. He talks about those who are in heaven. So he's probably referring to the holy angels and the beings that exist there that God has made and the saints who are in heaven, that all of them will bow the knee. He talks about on earth, which is probably a reference to both believers and unbelievers who were living on earth at the time. He talks about under the earth, uh, probably fallen angels and the unredeemed dead. The, the point is just this. Everyone, every single person, every created being will bow the knee to Jesus Christ. No knee in the universe is excluded. Now, not every knee will bow the same. Some will bow in adoring worship. And some will, will bow in grudging shame because they do not believe in the name of Jesus Christ. R regardless of your spiritual state, you will bow the knee to Christ. The big question is, will you do it now and be saved? Or will you wait until it's too late? Paul's point is, why would you wait? Because every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And, and there is a, um, a not-so-subtle uh, kind of thing going on here as, as Paul is writing this to the Philippians. Because uh, in that day, the greatest name in the greatest nation on earth was the name Nero. 
Nero was considered to have the greatest name on the face of the earth. He ruled over the greatest empire of the earth at the time, and Philippi was a Roman city. Uh, city. And so at public events, at sporting events and political meetings, they would declare Nero as Lord. They would declare him as, as God, and they would, they would give praise to his name. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, actually, there's a name above Nero's name. And this is a not-so-subtle uh, political slight, if you will. In fact, lots of Christians got in trouble for this because when they would be at public events, they would not declare that, that Nero was Lord, only that Jesus was Lord. Some were punished, some were imprisoned, some were put to death because they realized that Jesus is Lord. He talks about Jesus Christ being the Lord. Jesus, by the way, is the name that was given to him at his, at his birth, and uh, his name means the Lord saves, which makes a lot of sense because he came to save us. This is a message that we know right from the beginning that he came to save his people from their sins. Um, Christ, by the way, is not his last name. Uh, his, his name isn't Jesus Christ, or you know, if you have it in a file, Christ Jesus. It's not the way it works. It's actually a title. It's a spiritual office. It means the Messiah or the anointed. And so God sent Jesus down here uh, with a title, with, with, with a mission that he would come down and that he would seek us and die for our sin. He would be our, our deliverer. And then Paul calls him Lord. Again, in this context, it represents the personal covenant name Yahweh of God. And what he's saying is Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He has absolute supremacy over every being. Now, we live in a day and age where that's a little hard to imagine at times, isn't it? Because the name of Christ is often just despised and profaned in our culture. It's used uh, oftentimes as profanity. Uh, the name of our Lord is used in anger at times. It's, it's a name that is mocked at times. But, but as Christians, we think about it a little differently, don't we? We say that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the name that we were singing about this morning. It's the, the name that we pray in. We pray in the name of Christ. It's the name that we praise. Uh, it's the name that when we go out of these walls, it's the, it's the person that we proclaim. It's the point of spiritual conversations, of gospel conversations. So when we talk to other people, we don't, you know, as, as uh, members of Gateway, our mission isn't to go out of this church and say, oh, you know, um, let me tell you about Gateway and, and let me tell you about the programs we have and, and let me tell you about the worship services we have. That's not what we're about. We're about telling people about Jesus and about who he is and about what he's done for us. And what he says is one day every created being, even though it's hard to imagine now, every created being will confess Jesus is Lord. Every believing heart will proclaim it and worship Every unbelieving heart will confess it. Every human, every demon, even Satan himself will confess that Jesus is Lord. Caiaphas will, Herod will, Pilate will, Nero will, Hitler will, Stalin will. You can fill in the, the blank, whoever it seems like. It seems like an impossibility. Everyone will confess that Jesus is Lord. So what do we do with this knowledge? Well, we want to go back a little bit and remember, what's the point of all this in this context? Remember how we started this? Paul was telling us that even though Jesus was God, he let go of his rights. He let go of them. He, he let go of his prerogatives. And he moved down from heaven to be with us. 
it, down into a body, down in, uh, into the incarnation, into a humble servant, uh, down to a, a cross, down to the grave. And then Paul says, and then he began to move up again, uh, kind of off the ground, if you will, out of, out of the tomb, up into heaven uh, with the highest name. And in the future, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. One commentator put it this way. He said, what we believe about Jesus is the most important thing about us. And what we believe about him determines the way in which we live. Someone asked you a question. Do you believe the gospel? Yeah, actually, I want to ask you two questions. Do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that Jesus Christ came to this earth as eternal God? Do you believe that he came down here to seek and to save the lost? Do you believe that he, he lived for us? Do you believe that he died for us? Okay, so some of you are shaking your heads. Yes, that's, that's good. That's okay. You can do that. I know we're a very conservative church. No one's going to yell at you for shaking your head. All right, you can say amen. It's okay. Do you, do you believe that he rose for us? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he saves by faith? Do you believe that he has a name that is above every name? Do you believe that he is Lord of all? Do you believe that every knee is going to bow? Do you believe that every tongue is going to confess? Do you believe that? But then I want to ask you this. Not just do you believe in him, but I would ask you this. Do you believe him? Do you believe him? Do you believe what he taught? Do you believe what he said? Do you believe him? Do you believe what he said about things like humility? Because he said a lot of things about it. Do you believe him? Do you believe what he said about serving? We talked about that last week, about washing feet, about humility. Do you believe him? Do you believe what he said about letting go of our rights and, and letting go of our, our privilege? Do you believe what he said about seeking the welfare of others? Do you believe that? Earlier in our text, we read this a couple weeks ago, do nothing from selfish ambition. I do nothing from conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Okay, so this whole uh, passage that we've been studying for weeks now, we talk about kind of the Christological crown jewel of the book and maybe the New Testament. And it's easy to look at it and study it and take notes and all that's great. But we can forget that there is an application. And the application is simply this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says we need to be others first. When we are others first, it is a sign that the gospel is in us. Jesus said, by this people will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. It is a sign that the gospel is in us and it is necessary for health in our church. Uh, Paul's going to get to this, that there was a little division in the church in Philippi, and it really messes with the church, and it messes with the witness of the church. But when there's unity, when we're looking out for one another, what he says is this, all of this is possible because of Jesus, because he was humble, and he gives us the power to do the, the same thing. In 1 Peter, I love, I love what he says here, in 1 Peter 5, 5, 
He says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. So I like to think about it this way. Every morning when I get up, i got to put some clothes on before I, I go out into the world. And so he says, just imagine, if you will, just imagine every morning when you get up and you're putting your clothes on, just kind of go through, just kind of pray as you put your clothes on, and imagine that you're clothing yourself in humility. Because here's what God knows, and here's what Peter knows, and here's what Paul knows. We are kind of a prideful people. And we will gravitate towards being proud. And so he says it's just a good idea every morning when you get up and you clothe yourself, just remember to clothe yourself today in humility. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Notice not just humility, but humility toward one another. So that as you kind of go out and you rub shoulders with your spouse, with your kids, at work, with those annoying people that try you, you know, wherever you are, that you clothe yourself with humility with humility towards one another. For God opposes the, the proud, but he gives grace. He gives grace to the humble. He gives a gift. And so then he says this. He says, humble yourselves. Remember what we said? Nobody humbled Jesus. He humbled himself. Now he says, go be like your Lord. Your Lord and your God who humbled himself. Now go and humble yourselves. Don't wait for someone else to, to do it for you, which, by the way, a lot of people are more than willing to do that. But do it yourself. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now, I know we all have a timeline, right? We have this timeline when we want God to exalt us, when we got, want God to come through, when we want everyone to kind of raise us up. He says, just trust God with the timing on all this. At the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He knows that we are, we are prone toward anxiety, and much of the anxiety in our life is about us. And if I look out for everyone else, and who's going to look out for me? And, and, and who's going to lift me up? And who's going to make me feel good about myself? Who's going to do that? And here's what he says. Don't worry about that. Trust God in the right time to take care of that. See, the path to greatness is always through humility. And by the way, Jesus uh, wants every one of us to be truly great people. It's just that the way he defines greatness is often different from the way the world does. To be like our Lord, our God, and our Savior. To be humble in our attitude. To put others first. To take the role of a servant. And then to trust God. To just trust God. Jesus just trusted God to lift him up at the right time. In the same way, we don't have to be anxious and, you know, when's God going to do it and when am I going to come through, when am I going to get my, my trophy and all that, just to trust God for that. So I'm going to get up today and clothe myself in humility and go out and serve the people in my world. And this is the way it works because we all know that the best people are humble people. Isn't that true? Those are the people that bless us. They make the best spouses. The best spouses are humble spouses. The best parents are humble parents. The best teammates and classmates and, and the best teachers and coworkers and neighbors, the best citizens and church members are humble people. We know that. We know how that works. So he says, go out and, and do that. So here's a little something to know this morning. We've already covered this, but Jesus is Lord. And someday everyone will acknowledge that fact. Everyone will do that. This is a good week for us to think about, all right? Because this is a week of thanksgiving. We're thankful about all the great things that God has done for us. And we're grateful for that big meal we're going to eat on Thursday. But we're kind of we're being grateful here. Jesus is Lord, and everyone will acknowledge that fact. Let's do that now. Right? Why wait? Let's do that now. And here's a little something to do this week. 
I just want to encourage you to determine some area of your life. It could be a relationship, a job, finances, whatever it is, where you will actively live in light of Jesus' lordship this week. Jesus Christ is Lord. But he is, is he your Lord? Is he one that you love, that you serve, that you follow after? This is a great week for us to be able to practice this. Jesus Christ is Lord. So here's what we're going to do uh, to wrap this up. Uh, I'm going to pray for a minute, give you a minute to, uh, to pray. And I just want to encourage you during your prayer time. I don't know when the last time you just said to, to God, you know what? Jesus is Lord. And, and what does that mean for you right now to say that? Maybe you just need to acknowledge that again. Maybe there's some area in your life where you just need to acknowledge him as Lord and ask him to lead you this week. But I'm going to give you a chance to do that. And then we're going to sing a couple songs at the end because it just doesn't feel right to talk about Jesus Christ as Lord and that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So we're going to confess through a couple of songs. And and I just want to give you permission to sing as loud as you want and to proclaim Jesus as loudly as you want. You have my permission to do that. It's okay. We won't stare at you or any of that kind of stuff. So I'm just going to encourage you. Let's take a moment to pray.